This morning we'll continue our journey through the book of Revelation as we took a uh, break last week with Pastor Dan speaking out of 2 Corinthians 4. And this week we'll pick right back up as we continue our journey as a body working our way through the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 12 in the final scene of chapter 12 in the book of Revelation. I want to encourage you as even we begin, some of you new to the discussion of the book of Revelation, some of you having discussions before and everybody in between, I wish to encourage you that chapter 12 is a great place for all of us to meditate. Chapter 12 is clearly speaking of the church. In many ways, some of us can say, well, there's a different people, perhaps a future people in a 1260-day period, or there's a future people in a period of a time, times, and half a time. And I won't continue to belabor that point with you, as some of you have been here before, and we have dealt with that specifically. But I do wish to encourage each of you again this morning. It's not just a little bit of a, a, of a, a debate for someone in a, in a classroom somewhere. To decide the book of Revelation. To labor over the book of Revelation about the Lord's return and who it considers the blessedness of His return and what will take place in that return. It's not for somebody somewhere else with some other concern. If we begin to mishandle the book of Revelation... We do so to our own peril. If we withdraw from the book of Revelation and we say, oh, it's just too hard. There's too much going on. It's for somebody else anyway. We hurt our own walk with the Lord. We're not laboring intensively as best as we are able, some more robustly than others, granted. But all of us, by the power of the Spirit, will learn God's Word. And it's not. I'm begging you. It's not for someone else at some other age. It's to the church of Jesus Christ. And chapter 12 is a great place to learn that. It's so clearly evident that the book of Revelation in chapter 12 is dealing with the realities of the ministry of Jesus You remember that. We've already been there. The woman Israel gave birth to a male child. He was caught up to God before the dragon could eat him. All of us working through that imagery. Even if we're not the most robust students, we can all look upon the first century and say, well, I have some vague notion through that imagery who that has referent to. It's got to be Jesus and His work. And his resurrection in the victory that he brought. To who? We ask. To the church of all ages. Who is the woman but the church of Jesus Christ? Who is being nourished today in this time of trial and tribulation? church of Jesus Christ, you and me, how are we being nourished by times like this in the power of the Spirit as we commune together as a body around God's Word? 
There are three major scenes in the book, or excuse me, in the chapter 12. Three major scenes. We've already covered one. I just briefly referenced it to you of the woman, the child, and the dragon. And then we watched scene number two, the heavenly warfare that mirrored what took place on earth. So you have a, a, a warfare scene through the work of Christ on the cross in the first six verses. And the woman, immediately after the resurrection, takes flight into the wilderness place to be nourished by God in this difficult age. And then you saw a picture of Michael and his angels then waging warfare against the dragon and his angels. And there was this heavenly counterpart to earth's realities two scenes earth and heaven's counterpart we have come to the third and final scene the kind of outcome as it were to the scenes that we have already beheld the victory of christ in the resurrection and the result that then will follow to you the church as a result of Christ's resurrection. The final scene that you're about to walk through with me for the next few moments is essentially a picture of an already defeated foe who knows his time is short and he's been shut out of the heavenly place of accusation. He lost his accusatory powers. For those of you who are not with us, just that is a rehearsal of scene number two in the heavenly warfare that took place to symbolize or counterpart the earth's realities. The ultimate outcome for Satan, as we will get to in just briefly in one moment, is he lost his ability to accuse the brethren. Why? How is it in your life that Satan has lost his ability to accuse you? Is it because you no longer commit sin? Of course not. You do and will. So why are you not able to be accused and found guilty in the court of God? Because of scene one, the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have at one moment in your life, and if you have not yet, I trust through this text, I will plead with you to do so now. You've repented of your sin. That which your conscience accuses you of every day. You have listened to it. The prodding of the spirit that has gone forth. You've heard the call of Christ. You've realized your guilt. You have sought refuge in his name alone. Asked for free forgiveness. Received it. And so, by pardon, become a new creature. No longer able to be accused. That's how. Notice what I didn't say. No longer sinning ever. No longer by that sin to be accused. This is the work of Christ. And it applies to you. As we consider the final, I I, I don't know if any of you recall, but in in my foggy memory, as I go back and I think of a final scene where someone is completely beat and and it's clear. I mean, they're not getting out of this situation. 
I used to love Western movies. I, I'm a bit of a, a, of a toy soldier anyway. Uh, I, uh, I enjoy uh, that imagery, those movies, the action scenes, the ideas. I, I'm just into it. Even as a little kid, I had a little, you know, Western holster that I got some Western shop somewhere. And, and you know, I was cowboy par excellence in my backyard hour upon hour. So at some point on TV was a movie or a Western called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. If some of that offends you, I don't quite remember all of the contents. Uh, so hopefully there wasn't too much in there. Yet I do recall as they are captured in this moment and they're not getting out and it's over. Their run is done. Skin is caught. The last scene becomes this imagery, if I recall correctly, where bullets are coming through the building, right? And, 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 and they, the, the authorities are prevailing upon this place and they will get everybody inside. In other words, they know they've been defeated. And so, in a last-ditch effort with hundreds of armed people outside, one of the two I can't quite recall. Again, this is when I was wearing a Western belt still in my backyard. I don't do that now. At that time, drawing upon this imagery and memories, maybe I'll download the video now that I'm thinking of it now so clearly in my mind. Must need to see it again. One of the two then takes what he does have in these old six shooters and already shot, going to die. It's over. Says nonetheless, prop me up, open the door and push me out. And in that last ditch effort, I'll shoot every bullet that I got before I hit the ground and take as many as I can with me. In my final attempt that I know I'm defeated. But I'll take one or two of them with me as I go. This is the image of Revelation 12. Satan is just like Butch or Cassidy, Sundance Kid, one of the two individuals. Prop me up and push me out. You're defeated. It's over. Christ has raised. He set loose the captives. I'm going to take as many as I can. I'm going to wage warfare upon them, and I'm going to burden them so heavily they'll despair of their own life. I'll create such a dark context for them they won't even know where their faith resides. I'll create such a twisted culture in which they must thrive and survive that they won't know up for down, left for right. I know I've been defeated, but prop me up and push me out. I'm going to take as many as I can of the ungodly. I'm going to harden as many hardened hearts to make it harder than it's been. To confuse and lie. To whisper deceit and bring about demise. This is your life in the church age awaiting Christ's return. He knows that you wear white robes, blood-washed linens. He knows that. And woe to you, because he seeks to destroy you. 
This is chapter 12. If you would look at it with me as we jump into our text and walk through it for a few next moments, if you'll read along with me this sense of the defeated foe and his last desperate efforts in a warfare against Christ and his church. Beginning in verse 10, I will read down through 17 and we'll look at his last desperate efforts against Christ's church. And verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child but the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time the, spear, or the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river. Then the dragon became furious. He was furious with the woman and he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He stood on the sand of the sea. And I won't jump into 13. The imagery here that we're given about Christ, or excuse me, about Satan knowing that he is turning to the earth in a spirit of rage. He is pursuing the woman and her offspring. I I am arguing for you this morning, unto you this morning, this is the church. And we are wise to apply it as such. The first reason for Satan's rage, I want to point out too that the text gives to us very obviously, the reason for Satan's rage against you this morning, the church, and indeed those even outside of the church, the first reason given in the text for Satan's rage is that his power to accuse you is gone. Verse 10 and 11 make that clear. I trust you are laying hold of that. That it is the blood of Jesus Christ that prevailed for you when you received him as Savior. And as a response, a result, Satan's accusation and power is gone. Look with me where we've already seen this in the book of Revelation. Turn with me to chapter 5. Briefly looking at this, this image of the blood of Christ standing for His work on the cross. If you look in chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, we've already sang of this victory as we were moved into heaven by John's vision. Chapter 5, verse 9. 
they sang a new song. And the content of this new song is centered on Jesus and his resurrection, his atoning work. Read with me if you'll look along. Worthy are you, talking to Christ, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them out of this atoning work, out of seeking them in your own flesh, becoming man, dwelling among us, living obediently, perfectly, sinlessly. He then shed His blood and made His people a kingdom. Priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. These are the realities of Christ's atoning death. We are teaching this already in the four through sevens as we think this is a centerpiece in your life as a Christian. Remembering the contents of this new song. Singing it. Knowing it. That when the accuser comes, you are able to respond by faith. That accusation cannot stick. There is a better plea that is made for me. The atoning work of Christ. We're teaching it. I asked my son about his time in 4 through 7. So I have a a boy named Owen. For some of you might not know that. He is five years old. So he is right now currently in this middle room. So we have our nursery here. Our middle room 4 through 7 and the 2 through 3 at the end down there. And each week it's nice as I, I see the, the labor and the work of our ministers, uh, those who minister through teaching the children, how they labor and how they, they work to express truths just like this, not to just adults, but to the children. I ask my son quizzes and questions so that I can check in on the teachers to see if they're accurate or not. No, don't worry, I don't trust Owen's opinion. Many times he says he doesn't know what he learned. I don't blame you. No, but seriously, I, I, we do go over the content of his class time, and I ask him as he has been learning the centrality of the new song in his own life. He's still asking questions about it. No doubt he's simply five years old. Yet I ask him, Owen, what can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, he says to me. What can make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's five. So too many of you, I look out your children likewise. It's a theme. Emmanuel's veins, right? And we'll sing it until we die. What can wash away my sin? Not enough self-help in the world. Not enough mental exercises to pretend I'm somebody else. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He ransomed you by His blood. A better plea he offers for you 
by his blood. You overcome Satan, the accuser of your soul, by his blood. What can make me whole again? There is no fount. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Some of you might have heard of the pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He uh, was an English pastor, and he spoke this way about the blood of Jesus Christ and the guilt of the sinner. He says, the guilt of sin to your soul is gone. The great power of the serpent, you must understand, that is the dragon. His power lies in unpardoned sin. He cries to you, I have made you guilty. I brought you in under the curse. God's people must say, no. We are delivered from the curse. We are now blessed children of the Most High. For God's people must say, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is, you recall, covered. Blessed. He continues as I concluded this comment. We are no longer guilty for who can lay a charge against God elect. Since Christ has justified. Who is that that can condemn? Here is, beloved, the swinging blow for the dragon's head. A blow from which he shall never rise. I must ask, lay upon your conscience through the preaching of God's word. Are you washed in the blood? In the soul cleansing blood of the lamb. Are your garments sparkling? Are they white as snow? Quite simply, all of that to say, are they washed in the blood of the Lamb? There is no other fount. And I could go on and on as you're sewing all of the songs together in your mind. Yet, if one is true, that by faith in Christ I am cleansed, and I can shout back in Satan's face, no, when he comes accusing then the opposite is also remaining true for those outside of the blood of the Lamb. The accusations will indeed stick. And they do. So as to die in this life and be raised only to experience a second death. If it is true that those covered in the blood of Christ, are washed pure. So too, those outside of the gospel, the blood of Christ, you have not been cleansed. The accuser accuses, rightfully so, day and night.
the second portion of why we look at this text and see Satan's rage. If you look back with me in chapter 12. The reason for Satan's rage, number one, is his power of accusation is gone. And secondly, it's quite obvious. You have already probably put it together. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, those who have overcome by the blood. You who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because here is his wrath. His rage is sure. He knows that his time is short. He knows that. There he is, the first image I began with you by way of introduction. He knows he is going to die, as it were. He knows his time is limited. The skin has been caught. So in a fierce attempt of rage, he turns against the church. Indeed, beyond the church, even unto the ungodly. That's one thing I think that is interesting, and we saw this earlier in chapter, chapter 9, and some of you were not able to be with us for that time, but I would encourage you as you read chapter 9 to look at Satan, that is the release of the angel of the bottomless pit, and then you see the locusts that then begin to swarm upon the earth. And then as one who is outside of Christ, feel like you have no room for him, and maybe you'll square with him later, as it were, look at the locust and the angel. Who is it that they're attacking and making their lives miserable? It's all who love them and participate with them. In other words, as we spoke in chapter 9, sin is not your friend. He wants to destroy even those outside of Christ. He is a liar, the father of lies. He isn't just seeking to attempt to destroy the woman. He is seeking to destroy the earth. When he is finally cast, and we'll get there, believe it or not, we will make it to Revelation 20. Someday. And we will see the dragon is going to be grasped and he's going to be cast into an eternal place of damnation. And when he's cast that day... He hopes to take you with him. Sin is not your friend. Here as we look at his rage as he knows his time is limited, seeking to devour not just the church, but indeed all of peoples upon the earth who already are in a state of unbelief. Good, your heart is hard. I'm going to harden it even harder through various forms of vices to blind the hearts of the unbelieving and to create fear in the minds of the church. We'll see that when we get to chapter 13. He knows his time is short. He knows he cannot win. He knows the time is near of Christ's ultimate consummation. In many ways, I hope it's not, well, if we need it, I hope it is a rebuke to us. He perhaps believes by faith more accurately and applies more literally, could I say, the words of Peter than perhaps the church. Look with me by what I mean by turning, if you would, in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. It's just a few pages back. I want to read for you what it seems clear with this 
idea of shortness and nearness, Satan's rage that we will by Christ's blood endure and overcome, but it will be difficult. And he understands this church age as but a brief moment in time. He knows the end is near. And Peter wants to encourage you this morning without thinking it's just going to continue. The earth is going to continue spinning just like it has always spun. And it's really never actually going to occur. Peter is encouraging you to not think like that. John in the book of Revelation in the very first three verses tells you at the beginning of the book, don't think like that. Don't think it is what it is, and I'm going to wake up tomorrow, I'm going to go to work, and I'm going to do my thing, just like generations after me. It's never going to actually draw near. Satan knows it already is near. The urgency on one side, and the apathy upon Christ's church, may it not be so. Might we rise with a spirit of urgency? for our families, for our own soul in the matter. And not by apathy, drowned in sin. Peter says, do not be like that. Notice how, in 2 Peter chapter 3, begin with reading along with me in verse 8. This is a word to you, Christian, in this church age. Do not overlook Don't don't overlook it. Don't presume it. Don't move by it. There is an urgent attack that is upon you. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. Don't be apathetic like the ungodly from verse 4. And you can look there earlier as he's contrasting the scoffers with the godly. Be urgent, beloved. And a thousand years is as one day. Don't overlook that. The Lord is not actually slow to fulfill His promise. And some are counting slowness. Those who say outside of faith, it's just going to go as it always has gone. Verse 4. He says, don't be like that. God is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, beloved, the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed in that day. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved. If it's true, if it's true... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire, beloved. And they will be dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness Dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, in this time of waiting, be diligent to be found by him without spot and blemish and at peace. If we were to take that text 
Consider it from Revelation 12 and the satanic urgency as he turns to the earth to devour the woman and he knows what his time is near. Beloved, don't be living asleep. By faith, don't overlook that a thousand years is a day with the Lord. He is actually not slow in what you're considering to be a really long, slow, and hard life. He is not slow, but he is kind, and he is patient, and he is calling you to holy lives as you await his coming. Let me ask you then, how are you doing on being diligent, Peter says, to be found holy and righteous as is appearing. Right? Do you see that there? He said, since you're waiting for these realities, be careful to be found as you're waiting holy and righteous. Be careful. Satan knows The end is near. He is urgently seeking your destruction. Are you asleep? Or are you taking stock of your relationships? To care for one another and to love one another. Are you taking care of how you're speaking to your children and raising them? Are you laboring to put the word of God before them and before yourself? Remember, growing in godliness isn't a miracle of mystery. It indeed is a miracle. But one by practice, like being here this morning. That wasn't some hidden mystery for growth in godliness. It was a concrete community God has given us to be together so that we can help one another be careful To be found holy and righteous at his appearing. Consider yet another godly discipline by grace. Prayer. That's not more fairy dust. That's a concrete way of seeking the Lord. Or maybe we just don't pray because we don't think we're being sought. Let us come into conformity with Revelation 12. Woe to you. Satan seeks to devour you. Let me give you one more discipline so we'd consider how could I be careful to grow in this age? What about belonging to an organic community for word and sacrament and prayer? What about belonging also unto the word, giving yourself to it? Does it have a place in our homes at all? Does it have a place in our own heart? As we consider, Paul would say in Ephesians 6, what, can you recall with me? What weapon is the Word of God? Ephesians 6. A defensive weapon? Offensive weapon? Let's just label it an, a weapon of destruction for the enemy. The sword. He does seek you, beloved. Give yourself. Verses 13 through 17, turn with me back in the text here as we kind of work our way through the next little portion here of our passage. John gives us a blow-for-blow account 
of Satan's destruction as he seeks to kill and destroy both the ungodly and the godly, the church and those outside of her. Look in verse 13 through 17, and you look at the first way in which Satan is seeking to destroy the church. Look at the first image of verse 13 and 14. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. This is our life. She had given birth to the male child. But the woman gives, was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished. If you look there at the first blow-by-blow blow account, Satan, if you could consider him from this passage, he pursues you, the woman, but God provides. I want to give just a small little word here on another symbol. We're going to see in just the very next image as we come to our time of closing. There is another image that, uh, how, how are we to handle uh, the woman, this great eagle? She's been given wings and she flies away. And then the next image that we look at, the serpent, he opens his mouth and a flood comes to devour and drown the church. So we're already like, wow, what is going on right here, right? As we're looking at these images, the best way to handle them most consistently, and again, I would ask, please do come to that evening where we can kind of have some question and answer around the book of Revelation on the 15th, but uh, um, for a brief moment here, as we consider, if we look at these images, we have to ask ourselves, are these images mind-blowing? Are they much more easily accessible than maybe we thought before? So that we don't come to it like hysteric. What's going on here? This is crazy. No one has wings. We know that. But if we just take a deep breath, we can think, have we ever seen such an image communicated to the people of God in all of the Bible before? Because if there's an access to an image here, and we find out that it's actually been used before, we can say, oh great, so this has actually been spoken to the people of God before. Well then, what are the parallelisms between them? Because maybe it's just John using consistent biblical imagery. Not something brand new and hysterical. I think that's what we find here. The image of the great wings of an eagle. You already remember where that was used, right? Because it was read for you already this morning. Exodus 19. He bore them up on eagle's wings. As he rehearsed to Israel in Exodus 19.6. His deliverance that he gave to them coming out of Egypt. Taking them where? to a wilderness place of nourishment. The image is the same. So then what do we get out of that? The provision to the Israel of old and the Israel of new. God promises to bear you up and provide for you, to nourish you, to protect and keep you just like he has always done to his people in difficult ages. Wow, that was pretty easy. That was much less hysteric. We just kind of looked at it and saw. This is a comment on God's care and provision. Beloved, you will not be overcome. Does that mean there'll be no battle? Well, no, we saw that. Woe to you. He comes in great wrath. Peter said, don't overlook that. And he also went on to say, 
Satan is like a ravenous lion seeking to devour you. Where is God in that? He's going to bear you up. You will not be overcome. He will give you the wings of the great eagle. In other words, he will provide and he will protect his church when harm does come. By faith, are you relying upon him? Are you laying hold of this promise deep in your heart? Because I know many of you in here, we've had many discussions. And there are trials and tribulations. Do you want me to just explain to the church all of your individual challenges? (laughs) No. I don't want you disclosing mine either. But we're a community together and we know there is challenge. Are we trusting in God's care? Claiming his promises to bear us You are not alone. That's the communication of the image of God giving to the woman the wings of the great eagle. Let me handle for you just the next in our time of close here. The second image, if you would, is we would again just simply make the same comments. The second attempt to destroy the woman as we look at the last portion of our text this morning. If you look there in verse 15. Since God is caring for the woman, caring for the church, giving her provision and care... The serpent tried strike number two. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth, swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Once again, we would do the same thing to consistently handle image number two. What's going on with the floodwaters that are pouring forth from the serpent's mouth to seek a flood to destroy the church? Well, if we look at the book of Revelation so far, what typically proceeds from someone's mouth are images. What are the images that are coming out of people's mouth? What does that mean? The images that proceed from the mouth are words and their power. How so? Let me just briefly give you three examples. The Son of Man. Do you remember? The Son of Man in chapter 1, verse 16. The Son of Man appeared. John saw him high and lifted up. And proceeding from his mouth was a double-edged sword. You received that immediately as a word about his ability to speak forth power. He will once again come in the end in chapter 19 where he will appear riding on a horse with a ribbon that says his name is faithful and true and proceeding from his mouth yet again will be a sword. Consistency demands that we see words and their power. Lest we get sidetracked into pretty neat drawings. Pastor Dan provided the children or has at least in the past, perhaps even this morning, provided the children with, as they follow along in Revelation, their heads are spinning, right? He says, just draw the images of what you're seeing. Maybe we could just take the children's drawings and put them up and say, how are they? And is our interpretation pretty much like what they're drawing? An individual with a sword peering out of his mouth. And we're like, well, that's kind of how we're hearing it too. Perhaps not. Hopefully, I say not. We're seeing what the communication is It's word and power. Two witnesses. You remember chapter 11. By the time you get to chapter 11, and there's two witnesses. And they're speaking. And they're testifying to Christ and His work in this age. The church. But what is it that proceeds from their mouth? 
fire. Some of you maybe are persuaded that that is actual fire coming out of their mouth. I would hope to challenge that. Hopefully we're recognizing the way that symbolism is operating through the book and we see that it is another picture of victory proceeding from their mouth of words of power. Finally, next, we'll see also coming from the mouth the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You've heard of them. They're coming next chapter. And guess what proceeds from their mouth? Spirits like frogs coming out of their mouth. Another image yet to get to as we consider their identity and what's actually proceeding from their mouth. It's not frogs. I'll give you that little teaser. Hopefully we'll get there and you'll come back. This is the way the book is heaping image upon image upon image. It's not for hysterical interpretation and unique drawings and paintings. It really is for your edification and strength. Satan seeks to destroy the church. He knows his time is short and his ability to accuse her before the father is gone. So by every other means possible, he will seek to devour her. What is it that would proceed from the serpent's mouth that would work like a flood to wash the church away? Well, if you look earlier in the text, you'll see, I believe it's around verse 9. Actually, I think it is verse 9 that Satan is characterized there in his functional capacity. What is he? The deceiver of the whole world. What type of flood would Satan seek to unleash upon the church? A flood of lies. Deceit. What form would these lies and this deceit come from? Waters that flow down Penn Avenue and wash us all away? Hopefully we're kind of taking a step back from that cliff. Consistent with the way he's already been introduced. False teaching, beloved. It's already occurred in the book of Revelation. For some of you who weren't able to be with us in the earliest portions as we address the letters to the churches. There in the church, there's false teaching taking place. Jesus speaks about opening his mouth. Only this one isn't a flood consuming them. This one is a spitting of them out. Because of false teaching, he warns you, beloved. The deceiver of the whole world is seeking to destroy the church. And he is going to open up his mouth against her. And he's going to do so through false teaching and deceit. Is that going to happen just somewhere out there? Or is it happening already? Hopefully not right here. Satan seeks to destroy us through false teaching. Last image as I close with you. Simply the earth opening there and swallowing the flood. You say, what is the role of the earth there opening up and swallowing this flood against the church? Well, you quite easily know it as the same events as Exodus where the earth opens up in Exodus 15 and it swallows the Egyptians. So too, to the Israel of old, God will bear her up and he did. And so too, to the Israel of this age, he will bear you up and care and provide for you, though Satan seeks to destroy you. 
Our final passage, I would just read for you, if you would just stand with me and listen quietly to the reading of God's word as we close. The question is then, how then shall we live? How then shall we live in light of these realities? I give you one word of application as you leave this place. Two words, I can't count. Fear not. That's how we leave this place. Fear not. I read for you from Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flame, it will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. I love you. Let us pray. Our God, I pray a word of power for the people of God, hearing the word of God. I pray that they will be strengthened to godly resolve and diligence to be found holy and blameless before you in this age as they give themselves to practical principle, word, prayer, fellowship, communion, that you by your grace through the Spirit will transform them into strength. They won't feel overwhelmed but they will recall, fear not. For you will carry us with the great wings of the eagle through trial and tribulation and distress. Thank you for this great word. Apply it to each soul here. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.